Chapter Twenty Three of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C. M. Livingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Twenty Three, Precipitation. The Reverend John Remington was in his study, in his favorite chair, and evidently studying, though neither book nor paper was at hand. His elbows rested on the hospitable arms of the study chair, and his head was bowed on his hands whose fingers interlocking formed a rest for it. Some philosopher in human nature says that for certain natures this is the attitude of deep and painful thought. If you could have seen the heavy lines on this young minister's forehead and the quiver of his sensitive mouth hidden by the friendly hands, you would have felt that the philosophy held good in this place. He was not alone. Seated in the easy chair near the study table, the chair Mattie was supposed to occupy, and rarely had time for in these days, with eyes dropped to the carpet, his entire attitude betokening respectful waiting, was Earl Mason. There was no quiver on his lips. Instead, they were firmly set, and there was about him an indescribable air of holding himself in check. The silence between them lasted until Mr. Remington seemed suddenly to become aware that it was growing painful, and lifted his head with a faint smile. "'I beg your pardon,' he said, I had almost forgotten that I was not alone. You see how entirely at home I must be with you. There are some whose presence I could not forget, however much I might wish to. No apology is necessary, of course, Mr. Remington. But may I be allowed to ask what you mean to do, or is that premature? Not at all. There is but one thing to do. I will go, of course. When a pastor is respectfully invited by eight of his leading members to do so, I take it there is nothing left for him but to resign. Now the eyes flashed, and the impetuous tongue burst forth. I do not see why, sir, when the eight members are leading ones merely because they happen to control more money than the others. This is not a new experience in our church. Your immediate predecessor, as well as several who preceded him, passed through a like ordeal. Did you never hear how Dr. Bourne was treated? Despite his excellent powers of self-control, John Remington winced. Yes, he had heard of Dr. Bourne, and a vivid flush overspread his heretofore pale face. He had heard that Dr. Bourne was a good man, a well-meaning man, but not in any sense of the word a preacher. Good, old-fashioned, prosy sermons, you know, Mr. Chilton had told him with a benevolent smile and had added, I respect Dr. Bourne as much as any man could, and regret the necessity which was laid upon us for making a change, but one's personal feelings must not interfere with one's duty where the good of the church is concerned. You know, of course, that that sort of preaching will not do for the present generation. And Mr. Remington had acquiesced, by silence at least. Perhaps, in this hour of painful awakening, he saw more plainly than ever before the train of thought which he had pursued while Mr. Chilton was explaining the sacrifice of personal feeling made for the good of the church. Of course, a preacher of the gospel ought to keep abreast of the times. He cannot be expected to win the respect of thinking men who are alive to all questions of the day unless he can meet them on their own ground with as thorough a grasp of the subject as they and with ability to present his views in a logical and interesting manner. He did not think they would have occasion to find fault with him on that score, at least. 
this humiliated pastor recognized thoughts like these as the ones which had presented themselves during that talk with mr chiltern was he then an egotist that despicable thing a vain man trusting in his own powers of logic and elocution to move the multitude toward christ no he was not he held up his head and told himself boldly that there was no need for making himself worse than he was that his supreme hope and trust had been centered in the thought of the Holy Spirit speaking through him. But he had believed that the Lord called men of talent to the gospel ministry and expected them to use their talents to the utmost, and he had believed that the reason Dr. Bourne failed was not because of the hardness of men's hearts, but because of the weakness of his powers. He himself had not expected to fail, at least not in this line, Yet here beside him lay that curiously written letter, every word of which struck him like a knife, a letter which said that they regretted the necessity which seemed to be upon them to seek a change for their pulpit. They did not doubt his integrity of purpose, nor his earnestness of soul, but they felt that he must have seen that he was not succeeding in holding the young and vigorous elements of the church, that his style of preaching, though excellent in its way, and all that many churches might desire— did not seem suited to the demands of Kensett Square, and much more in the same strain. There are ministers, and ministers' sons and daughters, who will smile over this story. They know so well the very phraseology of communications of like character. It is true in this, as in other lines, that history repeats itself. But it was all new to John Remington, and his heart was as heavy as lead. Earl Mason did not await this retrospect in silence. He was pouring out a torrent of words. "'I am an advocate of peace, Mr. Remington. I have always taken the ground that it should be maintained at the expense of everything but principle. But I declare to you that I think the time has come when the Kensett Square Church should listen to the voice of its large majority of people, with brains and souls, whose pockets are not so heavily lined as those of the present controllers of affairs, do you not know that fully three-fourths of your large congregation would today sign a petition begging you to remain at any cost, and that a respectable portion of the other fourth would sign the same paper if they were not held in bondage to the aforesaid few? Is it right for the few, whose aims and plans are utterly out of accord with the spirit of the gospel, to rule the church of God? Mr. Remington was regarding him thoughtfully, and now asked, What do you take to be the real animus of this letter, then? Do you mean that even those men who have signed it do not honestly feel what they say? Do they not really think that my sermons are such as cannot benefit the Kensett Square congregation? Earl Mason threw back his head in evident scorn. Benefit! Dear sir, they are perfectly honest. But how do they want the Kensett Square congregation benefited? They want to retain the favor of the fashionable, worldly crowd— they want its members to be able to make their nightly feasts, where wine and cards and fashionable dancing rule the hour. They want them to think nothing about the wages of the poor, or the temptations of the poor, except to plan asylums for the daily increasing number of paupers. My dear pastor, the fraction which rules Kensett Square, and has ruled it for a score of years, believes itself to be rich and in need of nothing and wishes to be left in peaceable possession of such belief. It has come to realize that such sermons as yours must either bear fruit 
or be silenced. To sit quietly under them from Sabbath to Sabbath and make no change is impossible. But, Brother Mason, consider what you are saying. All but two of the names on this paper are members of the church. Church members, it is true, but, well, Mr. Remington, I'll be as charitable as I can under the circumstances, but I know these men well, and my father knew them before me. Judge not, that ye be not judged, said his pastor, with a wan smile. Yes, sir, and by their fruits ye shall know them. Look here, Mr. Remington, and drawing to him the letter which lay on the table, he pointed with his pencil to a name. This man furnishes work to dozens of women, at what he knows to be starvation prices, and when called upon to aid one of them who is dying of hunger and impure air, replied that when the woman brought home her last bundle of work and was paid for it, his responsibility toward her ceased. That to be expected to inquire into the aches and pains and whims of each woman who happened to work for him was preposterous. This man owns and receives rents for tenement houses, the sleeping apartments of which are green with mold, and refuses to spend a dollar in repairs. And to my certain knowledge, he turned a family into the streets last week because the mother, a widow, was twenty-four hours behind time with her rent. How dwelleth the love of God in him, Mr. Remington? And this man is the largest owner in one of the largest distilleries in the country. Unless his prospective father-in-law is as large, which I surmise, but do not know. The other items I can vouch for. His prospective father-in-law, the minister interrupted hastily. You surely do not mean Mr. Chilton. Brother Mason, that cannot be possible. I do indeed mean him, though as I say, that part is surmise. At least he is the owner of the building next to the foundry where we have been trying so hard to suppress that saloon, and have failed, by the way, and Mr. Chilton was petitioned when he gave the lease to make the selling of intoxicants in the building impossible, and refused. Is it possible, said Mr. Remington, and the pained, shocked look on his face was one that lingered afterwards in the young man's memory. There was silence between them for several minutes. Then Mr. Remington spoke again in a low, moved tone. Brother Mason, I have felt a peculiar anxiety for, and interest in, that man from the very first of my coming here. I have made him a special subject of prayer, and asked that the Lord would let me help him. Then it may be that the Lord's effort to reach him in answer to your prayer is what has stirred up all the evil within him, and made him so bitter against you. A man must either turn squarely around or plunge ahead when God's spirit strives with him. Is it not so? Is he bitter against me? Mr. Mason bowed gravely. More bitter, I think, than the others, though less honest. He does his work in an underhanded way, and is at the bottom of this precious document, if I mistake not. Mr. Remington, would it not be possible for you, and has not the time come when the church should rally around you and stand her ground? It would cause a division, it may be, but would we not be in better shape for the master's handling if we were to come out from such positions and be separate? Mr. Remington shook his head. It may have to come in time, he said gravely. It should come, perhaps, if you are right, 
but not yet, and not through me. I am too young a man. The spirit of the effort would be misunderstood and do harm. No, you must try again, with a new man who will try more wisely, perhaps, than I have done. Silence again, broken this time by Mr. Mason. Mr. Remington, where will you go? And when will you go? Not surely until the close of the church year? As to the first, Mr. Remington said with a grave smile, I am not sure. I have no present knowledge. That is, I do not see very far ahead. But as to the second question, nothing is plainer than that I should vacate this pulpit as soon as it can be done, in accordance with our church rules. Nothing is gained, in my judgment, by delay, when matters have reached such a focus as this. How they could have reached it without my having at least a premonition is almost beyond my comprehension. It would seem as though I must have been culpably blind. And he passed his hand wearily over his forehead, in a way he had when perplexed and weary at heart. They were precipitated, the young man said, with stern gravity, and by causes utterly outside of either your duty or control. May I ask if Mrs. Remington knows? A sudden flush overspread the minister's face, which had paled again. She does not, he said quickly. I have known of it myself, you remember, less than twenty-four hours, and I have been weak, perhaps, hesitating for a word and smiling faintly. I have shrunk from telling her. These things strike to the very life of ministers' wives, Brother Mason. It is dastardly, said Mason, rising hastily. It will not do for me to talk about it yet. I have not your wonderful self-control, nor your Christ-like spirit. I will go. Only, there is this to say, and yet I don't know how to say it. There is a little church, a very poor church in a poor country village, which is just now in sad straits. No preaching in the town of any sort, and no present prospect. If you could at any time give them help for a few weeks, until you knew what you wanted to do, it would be work for Christ. They are hungry for the gospel. I will go to them with all my heart, if I can, said Mr. Remington promptly. If there is anything which it seems to me would do my soul good, it would be to get where there are some poor, disheartened, struggling people who are hungry for the gospel. It was the common people, you remember, who heard him gladly. And this time John Remington's smile was full and sweet. Now, in order to understand the motive powers which had precipitated this event, it will be necessary to go back a little, to the days immediately following the evening on which Alec Palmer so abruptly left his intended wife to her own troubled thoughts and went out, slamming the door ever so slightly after him. To say that Alec Palmer, on this occasion, was in a passion would be to put it very mildly. He had been angry before, in his life, as certain who were so unfortunate as to be in a degree in his power could have testified to their sorrow. But at this time the blood fairly boiled in his veins. He tramped a half-mile in the wrong direction before he was even composed enough to note the way he was taking. He told himself that he would have nothing more to do with the Chilton family, that he was well rid of a dangerous and exceedingly uncomfortable young woman who was getting views on all questions under heaven, and if there was one form of womankind more unutterably disagreeable than any other, it was females with views. 
that he, Alec Palmer, a millionaire in his own name, and with almost unlimited prospective wealth not only, but with the most dazzling political prospects opening before him, should actually be trammelled and thwarted by this soft-voiced, fair-browed young girl, who had mind of her own enough where other people were concerned, but had always been ready to defer to his slightest wish, was unbearable. All this, he told himself for the dozenth time, was because they had put a whining, meddling fanatic into the pulpit. Confound the puppy, he said, shutting his teeth together hard. And he did not know that in his rage he had chosen the same descriptive noun which the courtly, middle-aged officer of the church had used in reference to his pastor. End of chapter 23